you ever noticed how the best of authors are able to capture an entire book in their opening sentence? Uh, Several weeks ago, John, teaching downstairs, gave the Sunday school class a quiz, so I thought I would return the favor and give you one this morning. These are opening lines of famous books, all made into movies, and maybe you would recognize them. Now, I feel a little silly about this one. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, because I was going to use it to make fun of Paul, and he's not here, so I guess the joke's on me. That's pride and prejudice, by the way. The second one, in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. That was a river runs through it. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It is Harry Potter. For those of you who aren't young enough to have read it, I, I really like this one because I've never read the book, but I'm guessing almost all of you can guess what book this begins All children except one grew up. That's Peter Pan. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I've never read it. I have to, to some degree, agree it's one of my favorite books. They made it into a movie. I've not read the book. I watched the movie of Princess Bride. When I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. That was made into a popular movie. I'm guessing most of you can guess this because you read this when you were in elementary school. Where's Papa going with the axe, said Fern, to her mother as she was setting the table for breakfast? That's Charlotte's Web. How about this one? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Now, it's not the beginning of a book, but it may be the most famous introduction to the most famous political speech And it began with an incredibly controversial statement. Because everybody sitting on that morning in 1863 on the battlefield of Gettysburg was saying, huh? It's three score and 16 years ago. What are you talking about four score and seven years ago? See, the controversy was for the first century of our nation, The birth date was considered September 17, 1789 when the Constitution was signed and the 13 colonies became the United States. Almost no one went back to July 4, 1776 until Gettysburg. But because Abraham Lincoln needed something in which the African Americans weren't three-fifths of a citizen, he went back to the declaration that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And thus he changed the beginning of our nation's date. I'm guessing none of you celebrate September 17th, but you do July 4th. May I suggest this one is equally controversial? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, I I think with the Gettysburg Address, we have so grown accustomed to the beginning of our nation being July 4th, it doesn't bother us anymore. And we so are accustomed to Jesus being called the Christ that it doesn't bother us anymore. Every single one of us in the room have a given name and a surname, and we use those almost interchangeably. My name is Dan Andrews, and you can choose either of those. And we come to Jesus, and we almost get this idea that his name was Jesus Christ, but that isn't the case at all. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. 
Christ is perhaps the most special title any human being has ever been given the privilege of having. In fact, I would suggest that is Matthew's entire purpose is to present Jesus as the Christ. If you were here when we went through our road trip through the Bible, you remember the four Gospels paint uh, slightly different perspectives on the life of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke presents him as the perfect man and John as God. And thus the stories that they choose and even sometimes the perspective on similar stories are all chosen to reflect their desires. They, they had these different purposes that each of them wanted to share with us. And Matthew was presenting Jesus as the king, as Messiah, as the long-awaited son of God. And thus, from the very first words of his book, he wants to tell you why he's writing it. And everything that will follow will help support his thesis that Jesus is, in fact, the promised king. I would like to begin this morning by reading the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel in which he begins in verse number two by saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rahab, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elud, Elud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. I made it through and only butchered about half of them. Why in the world does Matthew begin with a genealogy? My guess is for most of us who have grown up in a 21st century, 20th century, Western American mind, a genealogy means nothing. We pride ourselves in trying to judge a person by the content of their character, not the place of their origin, the race of their origin, the family of their origin. And thus for us, we don't really care whose you are. We're concerned about who you are. But I would argue that that isn't the case for most of the world and certainly not through most of history. What was extremely important was whose you are. In fact, I'm told today that you can go to the Middle East and find almost any Bedouin and ask him his lineage and he for the next hour will tell you all 
of his father's, grandfather's, great-grandfather's for an hour worth of listening. It's kind of intriguing to me that for most of my life, genealogies were not all that important, but, but suddenly there seems like there has been a rekindling in genealogies. And, and I don't know that I fully understand it, but as we as a society have become more mobile, Yesterday, I, I made it all the way up to Village Creek. I had a chance this week to put in, I, I told Amber, 900 miles. I think it was really only about 850 miles from Minneapolis to, to Village Creek and back home. One of the gentlemen there was introducing himself, and he was sharing how he has two sons in Edmonton, a daughter in uh, Oregon, a son in Minnesota, and 14 grandkids scattered all over the United States. When you don't grow up next to your family, I think there's this desire to know who your family is. And thus, I'm confident all of you have seen the advertisements for Ancestral.com or uh, 23andMe or a host of other because we have this desire. But what happens if it doesn't go well? Signature, I, I mean, how did you, how did you know? But Hitch did the search. I just found the page. saw that going differently in my mind. So my family never saw him again. Well, except for on the wanted posters. Like I'm I'm really sorry. When I saw it on the computer, it said the butcher of Cadiz. You know, but I, th- I thought it was a profession, not a headline. It's just one of those horrible family legacies we've all tried to forget. Thank you. No, it was... A train wreck. (laughs) My guess is that if all of us looked far enough back, we would find a butcher of Cadiz in our past. Jesus did. In fact, one of the big questions that I come to Matthew is, why in the world does Matthew begin with a genealogy? It makes no sense to me, particularly in light of what we're going to look at this morning. But I think there are several reasons. The first is because it ties Jesus to the Old Testament. I I apologize for this up front, but the reality is the English 
kind of misses the translation. I was visiting with somebody this week that when you come to English translations, I hope you all realize the Bible was written in Greek in the Old Testament, primarily in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but primarily Hebrew. When you try and bring it into English, you struggle because there's often not a perfect parallel. And there's kind of two different philosophies. The King James, that was the authoritative Bible for almost 400 years in English, took a very literal approach in which they tried to translate word for word. In the 1970s, the New International Version, the NIV, came along, and they tried to capture the meaning, which they do a perfect job of in verse 1, but they miss something that is masterful. I, I apologize for putting the Greek up there, but this is what it says in Greek. Now, I'm guessing for most of you that's Greek. It, it, it literally reads the book of Genesis. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is playing on words masterfully. It can be translated as a record of genealogy, but literally it reads the book of Genesis. To me, there's no doubt what Matthew is trying to do, what he's trying for us to understand is that Jesus is not a new story. He didn't come out of nowhere. He is tying the book of Matthew back to the very first book in the Bible. He wants you to understand that Jesus is not something new. He is the continuation of something old. He is the fulfillment of everything we have been waiting for. In fact, if you were here when we went through the road trip, you'll remember that our English Old Testament is divided into 39 books, and we generally separate those into four major categories. The first is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then we have a section on history, a section on poetry, and a section on the prophets, the major and the minor prophets. This division that we have as part of our Bible was not really around in Jesus' time. In fact, it's a much later tradition. What the, the ancient Israelites did with their Old Testament, they divided it into three major sections that they called the Tanakh. Once again, instead of Greek, we're going to Hebrew. The acronyms for Tanakh is Torah, speaking of the law. The Navim, which is Hebrew for prophets. And the Ketavim, which is Hebrew for the writings. And they divided the Old Testament into these three major sections. The first five books of the, the Bible, the Torah, the law, became really important. Then they divided the Nevim into the first four books of history, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and then all of the prophets, and then they had these writings. If I could put it on a bookshelf, our Old Testament looks kind of like this. Theirs looked different. Because it began with Genesis, but they have a completely different order and the reason that is intriguing to me is, if I can throw out a timeline, I, I know that I love timelines, you may not. The Hebrew Old Testament doesn't divide Samuel into first and second Samuel, they're seen as one. And they generally cover the time from the King David through the end of the exile. But the book of Chronicles spends the first 12 chapters going through all of the genealogies all the way back to Adam. In fact, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the last book in the Bible is the book of Chronicles. It is a summary of everything you've read thus far. The Old Testament begins with a genealogy. Matthew 5 is a genealogy from Adam to Noah. Chapter 11 is from Noah down to Abraham. The book of Chronicles is a genealogy. Why would you be surprised that Matthew begins with a genealogy? I'm convinced he wants us to understand that if I am going to understand the story of Jesus, I have to understand the story of the Old Testament because they're not separate. They're tied together. 
But secondly, I, I think it defends Jesus' humanity. I, I fear that when we come to Christmas, one of the big hurdles we come to is Christmas has become a, a mythological celebration. I don't know if you know this or not, but there really was a plump priest named St. Nicholas who gave presents to kids. But over the years, that story has morphed and grown, and almost all of the children, when they think of Christmas, think of this fat Santa Claus who rides on a sleigh driven by a reindeer with a red nose that flies through the skies and delivers presents. And and I fear that story has impacted the way we look at the story even in church. Oh, that's so sweet. A little tiny baby in a manger. Isn't that lovely? Oh, it's such a nice story. But it's not just a story. It is actual history. And I'm convinced the reason why Matthew begins with the the genealogy is he wants us to understand that Jesus was real. He had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all the way back to David. He is a real story. I know that may not really hit us very hard, but I was reading the story of a, a young lady who went to Papua New Guinea shortly after World War II. One of her first tasks was to attempt to translate the the Bible into the language of the people she was ministering to. She eventually befriended and got to know a a gentleman, an older man who was very gifted in languages. Soon he was able to, to speak English as well as the language of the people. He even got to the place that he could read English. And he was in her her hut one day when she was working on the translation and she had her Bible open to, to Matthew and he began to read it and he picked it up and he said, that's a genealogy. And she said, yeah, I, I know hard names. We can just skip that. We can pick it up in verse 18. He says, no, no, you don't understand. This is a genealogy. She says, yes. See, I have been taught from birth that we came between the mating of a banana leaf and a rock. This is a real story. This has real ancestors. And he went around the entire village. This has a genealogy which demonstrates it's a real story. See, Matthew wants us to understand that this isn't make-believe. This isn't Santa Claus on steroids. This is real. And everybody in that genealogy is real. But I think the primary point that he wants to make is it's a royal priesthood. See, if you were going to claim to be Messiah, you would have to prove it. In fact, that was true in all of Israel's life. If you remember when Joshua comes into the land, he he divides the land between the 12 tribes. In order to buy land, they had a much different view of private land ownership. It never belonged to you. It always belonged to your family. And in order to buy a piece of property, you had to demonstrate you were of the right tribe in order to purchase that piece of property. If you desired to serve in the temple, you had to be able to demonstrate through a genealogy that you, in fact, were of the line of Levi and of the line of Aaron. There's a story in Ezra. Ezra has the people coming back from the exile. They were in Babylon. They come back and a group of men go to the temple to serve and they are not allowed to serve because they could not produce a genealogy that demonstrated that they were a descendant of Aaron. If you were going to assert that you were Messiah, the very first question that would be asked of you is where's your genealogical proof that you are a descendant of David? And what's really interesting is in the first century, all of those genealogical tables were kept in the temple. There was a room that you could have gone when Matthew wrote 
the Gospel of Matthew, and you could have checked his work because it was all publicly available. 70 AD, the Romans are going to come, set fire to the city, destroy the temple, and maybe one of the greatest tragedies in Jewish history is the genealogical tables are gone. And from 70 AD, it's impossible to prove you are in the line of Messiah. Messiah had to have come before 70 AD. And Matthew goes out of his way. He says it's a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating because he gets these reversed, doesn't he? Shouldn't it be son of Abraham, son of David? Not if you're trying to emphasize the royalty. In fact, the only person in all the genealogy that's described as king from David on till the exile, there's 14 kings, but none of them get the title. Only David does. And he concludes that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. If you take the time, and I I was tempted to take the time, but we're not going to, to go back and examine, for instance, the genealogies in 1 Chronicles and the genealogies in Matthew, or the genealogy even in Matthew compared to the one in Luke, you will find that there's some generations missing. Why? Well, you need to understand that in the Hebrew mindset, it was just as fair to call Jesus the son of David as it was to call him the son of Joseph. You could drop genealogies. You couldn't add. So why does he have 14? I I don't know for certain, but the commonly accepted reason is the Jews are really into numerology. Each letter in the alphabet gets a number. The Hebrew alphabet didn't have vowels. So in David's name, there's simply a Hebrew D, V, and D. The Ds are worth four points. The V is worth six points. Add it up, do you know what you get? 14. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think everything that Matthew writes is he's wanting you to understand that Jesus is Messiah and has all of the credentials to prove it. But for the few moments that we have left this morning... His genealogy is fascinating to me because it demonstrates some of God's amazing grace. Remember, you could leave people out, but you couldn't add people in. If you had a butcher of Cadiz, it would really be to your advantage to drop him from your genealogical tables. But Matthew does something that none of the other genealogies do. I challenge you to go back One of my challenges to you in a couple weeks, we're going to begin a new year. I challenge you to try and read through the Bible in a year. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how fast you read, to get through the Old and the New Testament if you do it every single day. Most who start that do really well till you get to Numbers, till you get to 1 Chronicles. And then you have 12 chapters of names you can't pronounce, of people you've never heard of, and you say, what's the point? Can I give you a challenge this year? Read them carefully to find a woman for me. Women weren't part of genealogies. You didn't include them. Matthew gives us 42 generations, 
And in the midst of those 42 generations, he includes five women. And the women he includes are a little surprising, to say the least. The first woman he includes is a woman named Tamar. Do you remember Tamar's story? My guess is you probably don't, because it's a story that we don't like to talk about very often. In fact, I'm not even sure that it's necessarily appropriate on a Sunday morning. If you go back to Genesis 38, where the story is told, it's a story of Judah and Tamar. Judah's oldest son married Tamar. Tamar was a a Gentile, and the son was not a very nice man, and God strikes him dead for his sin. According to Jewish tradition, if you died before you had a child, it was your brother's responsibility to father a child so your lineage could continue. And so Judah gives his second son, a man by the name of Onan, and he mocks Tamar and is struck dead by God. Now he only has one son left, and Tamar says, when are you going to give me your third son? And Judah, now a little reluctant, says, well, I'll give her to you soon, but never does. It isn't long until Tamar figures out that uh, Judah's not going to give her his youngest son, and so she does an unimaginable thing to me. In the ancient world, the highest worship you could perform in many of the religious systems was to go to a temple and hire a prostitute. It was said in the midst of that sexual ecstasy, you have reached the highest point of worship. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute sits outside a temple, and Judah comes by, and she seduces him and sleeps with him. And it just so happens she becomes pregnant. Judah offers her a price. He says, I'll give you a goat, but I don't have a goat here. I'll give it to you tomorrow. As a prepayment, I'll give you a ring, a rope, and a staff. Well, it isn't long until Tamar becomes pregnant and Judah leads the cheer to stone her to death. It amazes me how hypocritical people can be. He's the father, and yet he wants to kill her for being immoral. And as they're preparing to stone her, she pulls out the ring, the rope, and the staff and says, the father owns these things. It's actually a really fascinating story because if you go back to chapter 37 of Genesis, it's the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. And the person who is suggesting the idea of selling Joseph into slavery was none other than Judah. If you go forward to chapter 41, it seems as if Judah has changed dramatically. Because it is Judah who goes to his father and says, please send Benjamin with me, and if he doesn't come home, you can kill me in his place. What happens? I don't know. But I have to wonder if caught in the ancestral relationship with his daughter-in-law. I mean, think about Judah. How would you like him in your line? He raised two evil sons. He abandons his daughter-in-law. He sleeps with a prostitute. And then he tries to kill his daughter-in-law. And yet, he and she are in the line of Messiah. I have to wonder if Matthew doesn't want us to understand that there is no sin too great, no failure too deep that God cannot forgive. I've had people in my office, and they make a statement, I have done X. Is there any way God can forgive me? 
Tamar is a wonderful illustration that there is no failure too great. But Tamar played the part of a a prostitute once. The next person in the line was a prostitute. It's kind of interesting. In the book of Joshua, you remember the story. Joshua sends these two spies into the land, and they go and they hide. They go to a place where strangers would have been expected to go. They go to the, uh, the den of iniquity, the house of prostitution. Uh, it, Rahab hides them, and then they escape, and they say, put a, a scarlet card, and we will not kill you and your family if you leave the scarlet cord. Joshua never calls her a prostitute. The book of Hebrews does. In fact, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of faith, she is described as Rahab the prostitute. But Matthew gives us a little insight that I find fascinating. She is a Gentile prostitute who comes and lives in Israel and ends up married to a Jew? Who's this Selman guy? Truth is, I I don't know. But many scholars speculate that could he have been one of the two spies? So amazed by her kindness that he takes her in as a wife who just so happens to have one of the godliest men in all of the Old Testament, a picture of Jesus himself. As you get to the book of Ruth, you're going to be introduced to this great character called the Kinsman Redeemer, and Boaz goes out of his way to show love and kindness to Ruth. Why? I can't help but wonder if it isn't because his mother, Rahab, had instilled in him a love for outsiders, for the less fortunate. In fact, I think you begin to see a life that was transformed By the grace of God. Just as no sin is final, neither is any practice, any habit. God can change all of us. If he changed Rahab, God's grace can change any life. And then we come to Ruth. And I could spend the rest of the morning. I love the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is this amazing story. I think the reason I love the story of Ruth is because there's no miracles in Ruth. There's no slaying of giants, no parting of the Red Sea, just of a young girl who does nothing but trust God. In chapter 1, she comes back, and I just can't get past verse 21. The story is Naomi and her husband go off to Moab. Their sons marry Moabitess, which was a tremendous failure. A Moabite, because Balaam was hired by the Moabites, because Moab was begun in an ancestral relationship with Lot and his two daughters, God had forbidden them from ever entering the temple. And yet, Naomi and her husband go off and give their two sons to be married. The one has nothing to do with Israel. Ruth returns, and as she returns in verse 21, Naomi is saying, I'm bitter. Why? Because I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And I'm always amazed because standing next to her is her salvation in Ruth. And she misses it entirely. I wonder how often is my salvation standing next to me and I never open my eyes to see it. Ruth becomes the hero of the story. What did she do that was so amazing? One thing. 
when she had absolutely nothing. She trusted in God. Boaz will praise her and he will say, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. When Ruth had nothing but God, she determined that God was all she needed. I fear for some of us, we have too many things, so we don't really need God. But when everything else is taken, it is at that moment that we recognize our tremendous need. I love the story of Ruth because she trusted in a God with everything when she had nothing else. She becomes this incredible reminder of God's grace can provide hope in any situation. And then the last of the four women is somebody who's not even named. Why does Matthew call Bathsheba the wife of Uriah? Once again, I, I'm, I'm reading a little bit into to Matthew's writing, but I wonder if it isn't to shame David. Do you know who Uriah was? Uriah was not just another person in David's army. He wasn't just another Jew. He was one of David's mighty men. That means clear back to when Saul was chasing them, Uriah risked his life repeatedly for David. We're told, if you go back to the, to the first, or yes, first Kings, you'll read this incredible story of David's mighty men telling their exploits, and Uriah is in there, and yet David was willing to kill him to steal his wife. I love this story of Bathsheba. Because God is truly the God of second chances. It's really easy for me to get on my high horse and say, how could David ever do that? And yet the reality is there are so many times that I do things that I know I shouldn't. That you do things that you know you shouldn't. And yet God is the God of second chances. The reason why I I wanted to spend just a moment this morning on the genealogies, a section that I'm guessing most of us take about three seconds when we read the story of Matthew to get from verse 1 down to verse 18, is even in the midst of the genealogies are some incredible demonstrations of God's grace. See, the Christmas story is the story that the creator of the universe came for you to offer you life eternal. Father, I I thank you for the chance this morning to spend a few moments in in a section that most of us read way too rapidly. And yet there are so many stories in the genealogical tables filled with illustrations of your amazing grace. Thank you. Thank you for all of the stories before us. But thank you most of all for being willing to come. For it is in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.